I want to begin tonight, and, and over the next few weeks, I will uh, do this a number of times because I want you to get these basic ideas in your head to review some of the things that we have talked about. I also want to remind you that this is not necessarily a series that we're going to hit every single Sunday night, but every Sunday night will be its own topic, so they're not, uh, in other words, if I uh, go three Sunday nights in a row and then one Sunday night, you know, I decide I want to preach on what you did today that made me mad, so I'm not going to do, you know, no, I never do that. But, uh, but if, we, if, if the Lord puts something else on my heart some Sunday night, well, we can hit that topic and still go back to the, the Bible doctrines the next Sunday night without skipping a beat. And so continuity, for example, continuity on Wednesday night is very important. It's, uh, I hate missing Wednesday nights or having anything interrupt the continuity of our verse by verse through the Bible. That's not going to be the case with these Bible doctrines. They are, going to, they are each going to be uh, contained in their, in their own Sunday night message. So anyhow, I'm going to begin, and I'll do this again and again, by reviewing some of what we've learned over the last couple of weeks. Number one, Christian doctrine is the foundational teachings upon which all of Christianity is built as given to us in the Bible. And then we talked about this a Sunday morning or so ago, three reasons why we should be students of Bible doctrine. Number one, because Bible doctrine changes your life, Romans six seventeen. Number two, because Bible doctrine keeps you and the people that you love on the right path, 1 Timothy 4, verse number 16. And thirdly, because Bible doctrine nourishes you, 1 Timothy 4, 6. I can't tell you how many times when someone has been struggling spiritually that I've said to them, among other things, this is not the only answer I give, but you know, a lot of times somebody's having a hard time and I'll meet them at a, at a diner somewhere. And uh, we'll eat and we'll talk. And, and one of my questions will be, and I've asked some of you this question, do you read? Well, yeah. And uh, so I'll recommend a book. And the book will have sometimes nothing to do with what they're struggling with. And, you know, they or you will give me a puzzled look like, what's that got to do with my marriage? What's that got to do with, with whatever it is they're struggling with? And the answer is, it nourishes you. And having come right from the nutritionist this past Friday, who reviewed everything I eat and uh, told me what I could eat that would... And I'm sitting there, and uh, I'm looking at the things and thinking about the things that she's giving me, and I'm thinking, what in the world does that have to do with my blood sugar? What in the world does that have to do with uh, these other elements of my health? Well, they nourish you. And just because my non-medical mind can't put the pieces together, I need to take the doctor's word for it that if you'll get your nourishment from this source, you won't have this problem over here that seems unrelated. And even more so, if you'll understand that Bible doctrine nourishes you to study these subjects about the person of God, about 
the Bible and about the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and about the Holy Spirit and about salvation and all these doctrines. And I gave you 12 categories last Sunday night. We're going to hit all of them over time. And to study what the Bible teaches and know what you believe and why you believe it. You'll be nourished. Even if you can't find any practical connection between these doctrines and the issues that you might be facing. I'm not saying that it's the only thing you need. I'm saying that along with the other things you ought to be doing, you ought to be acquainting yourself with the doctrines of the Bible. And so, Bible doctrine changes your life, Romans 6, 17. Bible doctrine keeps you and the people that you love on the right path, 1 Timothy 4, 16. And Bible doctrine nourishes you, 1 Timothy 4, 6. And we said last Sunday night, theology is the study of God. That's the meaning of the word, and that's what it is. Theology is the study of God. The Bible is the sole authority for every Christian's study of God. Last Sunday night, we talked about some things that are not the authority for the study of God. The Bible and only the Bible. By the way, that's what separates us from other groups that are not us. It's so easy to listen. There's so many people out there that claim to be Christian, you know, and and Christian is just a a title that that people just attach to themselves. I'm not the judge of who is a Christian and who is not, but I know this. If you think that there is some other authority about God besides the Bible, then you're not a New Testament Bible Christian. The Bible is our sole authority for every Christian's study of God. And then we said this last Sunday night. Systematic theology is a method of studying God that organizes all of the doctrines of the Bible into basic categories. All right? Now, we're going to begin our trip into systematic theology tonight with the study of God himself. And I told you, I'm not going to major on the big words and the big phrases, but I'm going to tell you what they are. And so the study of God is what they call theology proper. No idea where that, you know, who, who thinks these things up? I don't know, but they've been around for centuries. Theology proper, that's the study of God himself. We're going to divide our study, and I'm saying we, I I didn't make this up, okay? I'm going to give you in a second uh, the major sources that that I'm studying just as a guide to go. Yeah, I mean, I've studied the Bible for myself practically all my life, but I, I am using guides as we go through systematic theology. I'm not copying anybody's system. It's sort of a overview of what everybody's doing, and then when I get done, I go, okay, I'm... This is how I'm going to lay it out. Okay, so this doesn't come from any one source. It's sort of getting advice from a bunch of different sources and then saying, okay, now here's how we're going to do it. We're going to divide our study what the Bible teaches about God into three categories. Number one, the existence of God. We're going to talk about that tonight. Number two, the attributes of God. That's going to take us many Sunday nights. The attributes of God. And then number three, the works of God. And don't forget, all this is what the Bible teaches about the existence of God. What the Bible teaches about the attributes of God. What the Bible teaches about the works of God. 
And I want you to know that I'm currently using basically seven resources out besides the Bible as my guide for this systematic theology. Let me give them to you quickly in order, just so I'm not uh, plagiarizing or, or anything like that. I don't think I'm using anything verbatim, but I read them. They guide me. I move on. Let me give you the seven. You can get all of these at Amazon. You can read them for yourself. Some of them will challenge your mental capacities, but... You, and, and some of them will, if you're having a hard time sleeping at night, they will help you. Some of these, they are, wow. But uh, anyway, all seven. Number one, Charles Hodge's Systematic Theology. Then James Boyce's Abstract of Systematic Theology. Stephen Charnock's Existence and Attributes of God. Number four, and by the way, if I was going to buy one of these seven this would be the one. Number four. I'm talking about if I were you and I were going to buy one of these seven, J.M. Uh, Pendleton's Christian Doctrines. That's probably the least brain cramping of these seven here. J.M. Pendleton's Christian Doctrines. Number five, John Dagg's Manual of Theology. Number six, Harold Wilmington's uh, Guide to the Bible. And number seven, John Gill's Body of Doctrinal and Practical Divinity. Now, you know me, that uh, I, uh, the thing that, that six of these seven men have in common is that they're dead. I like, I like dead guys. And uh, the only one that, that uh, is, is living is uh, Harold Wilmington. I'm pretty sure he's, he's still living. And, uh, he, but but uh, Her- Wilmington's Guide to the Bible, uh, but, the, but these other guys have all lived 100, 200, 300, even 400 years ago. That reminds me of a, of a joke that I'm going to slip in right here. I probably shouldn't quote this guy. How many of you, how many of you know uh, who Uncle Cy is? You know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about Uncle Cy? You know how they have those things where they ask him a question and he gives his answer. He said, somebody asked me if you could eat dinner with anybody, dead or living, who would you choose? He said, well, that's easy, living. Anyway, um, <laughs> All right, I know that popped in my head. I had to get it out there. Oh, there's the second round of laughter right there. That's, that's when it kicks in and you go, oh! Anyway, the existence of God. Now, this is what we're going to find in the next couple of minutes, I think, is so cool and awesome. Because this, I mean, this is so God, all right? But before, I'll tell you when we're getting there. I'll tell you when we're getting to the the moment that I think is like the moment of what we're going to look at tonight. But first, let's, let's hit a few things. The existence of God. How do we know that God exists? What are the arguments that there is a God? Okay? There are many logical, reasonable, and scientific evidences that have been offered for the existence of God. For example... All of mankind has some idea of a supreme being. That's called the universal argument that everybody knows. You you know, you go into the deepest, darkest jungle and discover this third world tribe that has never seen a white person. And they're worshiping someone bigger than themselves. And every human being has some sort of 
inclination that there is a God. That's offered as a proof of the existence of God. And let me illustrate that. How many of you know who Helen Keller is? Raise your hand if you know. Okay, Helen Keller could not see, could not hear, could not smell. And they tried to work with her, tried to help her, tried to communicate with her, and just just nothing. Finally, a breakthrough came through running water. She could feel running water. And that was the breakthrough of communication, to be able to communicate to her what this was. And that led to a system of communication with Helen Keller, with this person, this woman who was blind and deaf and whatever you call it when you can't smell. And um, they communicated with her. Finally, and this is after a long, long period of time, they began to communicate to her that God sent his son to die for her sins. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for her sins. And she communicated back after they told her about Jesus. She said, I I always knew he was there. Now I know his name. Now, that's what they call anecdotal evidence. That doesn't prove that everybody in the whole world knows that there's a God, but it's an awful strong piece of evidence. So the first logical proof, now we haven't gotten to the Bible yet, the first logical proof of the existence of God is the universal argument that all of mankind is some idea of a supreme being. The second Proof or argument is that every effect must have a cause. That's called the cosmological argument. Every effect must have a cause. When you hear a noise in the middle of the night, you never assume that it was nothing. Especially if you're, uh, if you're a man and you own your own home and you hear a noise, you know, a, a, a consistent noise that you don't normally hear. I can't sleep after that. You know, what is that? Let's see, I know what the furnace sounds like, that's not it. I know what the water heater sounds like, that's not it. I know what the water pump sounds like, that's not it. What is that? And I can't sleep until I find out what it is. Every effect has a cause. Well, this is the effect. This amazing world, that we, this is the effect. There must be a cause. And so there is another reasonable, logical argument for the existence of God. Every effect must have a cause. And that's illustrated with this story. One of the most famous scientists who's ever lived was Sir Isaac Newton. How do you know Sir Isaac Newton? Okay, very good. You don't have to know him personally, but if you if you heard of him, and I don't think he's related to Fig. But anyway, <laughs> Sir Isaac Newton was a brilliant, brilliant man. And he had in his possession, he had developed a functioning solar system. And it had rods and gears and belts and just for his observation. And and it had a a sun at the middle and the planets. It was amazing. 
Well, Sir Isaac Newton had a friend who didn't believe in God. And so one day the friend came up, and the friend had never seen his solar system that he had created before. So his friend came over, and he said, wow, look at that. Where, where did that come from? And Sir, Sir Isaac Newton just sort of grinned and said, oh, it just sort of appeared on its own. And his friend, what? And then he realized he was, because they'd had this argument before, Sir Isaac Newton saying, there has to be a God. And his friend saying, there's not a God. And he used this model as an illustration to say, that's why there has to be, there has to be somebody that made all this happen. So the cosmological argument Every effect must have a cause. Then there's the argument that every design, and this is a slightly different argument than the cause and effect, every design must have a designer. That's called the teleological argument. When you see all the laws that we depend on, do you understand that your car depends on certain laws to happen all the time? And if your car was not running right and you took it to a mechanic and he said, you know what, I've looked your car over, I've examined it, I've come to the conclusion that there's nothing mechanically wrong with your car, but what has happened is that the the laws of science, the laws of nature that make the combustible engine work, they've slightly changed. And so that's why your car's not, you, you need to find a new mechanic immediately because he's going out of his mind. We all know, we, hey, if the electrician came and he's trying to tell you why the circuits have blown and, and instead of repairing them, he offers some explanation for, well, the, the laws, the physical laws of nature have changed and that's why it's not, you say, you're out of your mind. Because we all depend with all of our energy, everything we do. Man, that phone in your pocket, hopefully not in your hand, that phone in your pocket, everything we do is dependent upon the consistent laws of nature. And they haven't let us down, have they? Well, that demands that there's a designer. Absolutely demands. And so that's called the teleological argument. And then there's the anthropological argument. These are great words, aren't they? And that is that the moral nature of man demands a moral creator. Even though we have a sin nature, it is still very evident that something, we have a conscience that says, even when I do wrong, I know what right is. And that demands that there must be a creator that put that inside of us, that conscience, that that moral compass to help us understand right and wrong. See, these are a few of the arguments. There are many more logical and reasonable arguments, but here we come to the moment. The light bulb, aha moment. Because now we're going to look at the Bible. Are you ready for this? This is amazing. Of all the books that you can read and consider to try to prove to us the existence of God, are you ready for this? The Bible never 
sets out anywhere to prove the existence of God. There's no place in the Bible that tries to make an argument for the existence of God. It proceeds on the assumption that God exists. Now, I know we're not talking about the, the Bible tonight, the bibliology. We'll get to that in a few weeks. Well, a few months probably, but, but wait a minute. If a bunch of men were getting together to write a book that fakes out the whole human race, which is what the theory is of the skeptic, don't you think they'd put a little energy into trying to prove to everybody? I mean, a God that just presents himself as, here I am, bang, deal with it. That's a pretty secure God. If this was a set of fairy tales made up by men, you know good and well there'd be many chapters in this book about, well, about the universal theory or the, the cosmological argument or the anthropological argument or the teleological. See, that's the creation of people who want to make sure the world knows there has to be a God. But the men who wrote the Bible... They were writing what God told them to write, and God, let's not waste any time arguing or trying to prove to anybody that, that I, let's just start off with, in the beginning, fourth word in, God, bang, done, like it or lump it. The Bible makes no argument for the existence of God. It proceeds on the assumption that God exists. God introduces himself in the first statement of the Bible as God. And the Hebrew word is Elohim. You know what Elohim means? It means the God whose strength is in himself. I'm the source of my own, my own source of strength. I am God. Now, uh, probably my favorite name for God in the Bible is the one that he introduced himself to Moses and said, if, if Pharaoh asks you who I am, tell him my name is I am that I am. And I am that I am tells us many truths about God's existence. First of all, it tells us that God neither needs nor has any resources outside of himself. I am that I am. That's a name, just the name I am. You need to, you need to ponder that long and hard. You need to meditate on that. I am. Here's an unbelieving Pharaoh that asks Moses, Who sent you? I am. You are what? No, what's the name of the God who sent you? I am. No, who is he? He is, I am. I mean, that just stinking says it all. I am that I am. God neither needs nor has any resources outside of himself. It also tells us that God owes no one any explanation for his existence. He gives no explanation and he owes nobody any explanation. I say again, if God were the creation of a bunch of conspirators who got together to write this miraculous book, 
there'd be a whole lot of explanation in there. But when it comes from a God who says, I am, you do with that whatever you want to, but I am. He says, let's, let's not waste any time on explanation. And by the way, we'll find out in a second why he doesn't have to anyway. But I am that I am. God neither needs nor has any resources outside of himself. God owes no one any explanation for his existence. And thirdly, it tells us, it tells all kinds of, I mean, you could write, you could probably list 25 things off the top of your head that are conclusions and truths that we draw from I am that I am. But three, and the third one is this, God has no point of origin. God, when uh, Moses says, who shall I say sent me? What do I tell him? Well, Long time ago, Moses, I was, uh, no, I am that I am. God was in the present tense then. He was in the present tense in Genesis 1-1. He was in the present tense a billion years before Genesis 1-1. He's in the present tense now. He'll be in the present tense a billion years from now. I am. No point of origin. Now, let's get to this. Turn to Romans chapter 1. God does not take any space in the Bible offering arguments for why there has to be a God. And here's what he did instead. Instead of offering arguments for why there must be a God, here's what he did. Romans chapter 1 verse number 20. Romans chapter 1, verse number 20. I hope you're looking at this. For the invisible things of him, of God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. That's us. Even his eternal Godhead, a power and Godhead, so that they... Who? Us. Are without excuse. Instead of taking up space in the Bible, giving evidence and proof of why there has to be a God, instead, God put into every human being, and I believe every creature, I believe every created thing, Knows there's a God. And I won't go down that road because it just take too much time. But let's just stick with the main argument here. Every human being knows that there's a God. So instead of taking the time, why should God take any space in his eternal word to prove what you already know? You can deny it, but you know it. And that leads us, oh, I said, here's a word I want, you to, I want you to know if you don't. The knowledge of God is innate. I-N-N-A-T-E. And I would make a joke about innate, but I want you to get the definition if you don't know it. You know, there's a joke there, in, not in seven, not in nine, in eight. But I'm not going to make that joke because I want you to understand the meaning. Innate means inborn. 
It means natural. So just in case there's anybody here that doesn't know what it means, say the word innate with me. Ready? Innate. What does it mean? It means inborn, okay? Uh, Say the word innate with me. Ready? Innate. And what does it mean? It means inborn. Say inborn with me. Ready? Inborn. The knowledge that God exists is innate in every human being. It's born into us. We know it. And that's why God does not spend one single verse of his Bible saying, let me tell you why there has to be a God. Let me, let me prove to you why there has to be. Never, not one verse in the Bible. Because he put that knowledge in all of us. Now look at Hebrews 11.6. Hebrew, Hebrews 11.6 tells us that God can be known by man. Now there's many other verses that do it, but this one is right in line with with uh, Romans 1.20, so let's stay along that theme. Uh, there's verses like Jeremiah 29.13, Ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all of your heart. And we've talked about that already, and I'll use it again as we conclude in just a couple of minutes here. But I want you to see this, all right? We said the knowledge of God is innate in every human being, And then I want to show you that God can be known by man, the Bible teaches. Hebrews 11, 6, and read it out loud with me, ready? But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. All right. If you want to approach God, if any human being wants to approach God, There's two requirements. Actually, there's one requirement. That's faith, and faith has two parts. Number one, if you're going to approach God and say, God, show me who you are. Number one, he requires you to believe that he exists. And when I was a kid, and that was a memory verse when I was in Sunday school, so I've heard this verse for decades. And I remember hearing that and thinking, that's not fair. How can God require me to know that he's, he exists when maybe I don't know that he exists? And then we go back to Romans 1.20 where God says, you do know that I exist. Don't, God says, don't insult me by lying to me and telling me that you don't know that I exist when I know that you know. God knows that you know. Now, it may be that you talk to somebody and you're trying to tell them about God. You're trying to give them the gospel. And they're throwing you. And you say, man, and they're so sincere. They're throwing me all these things about, I, I don't know. And I don't, I'm not sure. And I don't. And what you're seeing is somebody who has had so many lies piled on that innate knowledge that they can't see it anymore. But it's still there. And if you know that they know, it may change the way you approach in your conversation with them. But back to Hebrews eleven six, God says, don't insult me by telling me you don't know because I know that you know. And that's why I require, if you're going to approach me, you've got to fess up that 
you know that I exist. And secondly, that you know if you seek me, I'll show you. So, God can be known by man. So there's your agnostic. The agnostic says you can't know. God says you can. So Romans 1.20 nails the atheist. God nails the atheist. And in Hebrews 11.6, God nails the agnostic. God can be known by man. Don't tell me you can't know because I say you can know. And the third thing about the, um, the next thing, the last thing about the existence of God we said, uh, first of all, the Bible makes no argument for the existence of God. It proceeds on the assumption that God exists. We said, number two, God introduces himself in the first statement of the Bible as God. And we said, third, God's name, I am that I am, tells us many truths about God's existence. God neither needs nor has any resources outside of himself. God owes no one any explanation for his existence, and God has no point of orig- origination. Then we said, fourthly, the knowledge of God is innate in every human being, Romans 1.20. Number five, the Bible teaching about the existence of God. Number five, God can be known by man, Hebrews 11.6. But on the other hand, or at the same time, number six, God will never be fully known by man. Look at Romans chapter 11. And that's where we'll end before we conclude the same way we concluded last Sunday night, and the way we may conclude many or all of these messages on Bible doctrine. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways Past finding out. So on one hand, God can be known by man. Anyone who wants to know God can know God. But on the other hand, at the same time, God will never be fully known by man. You can find that same concept in many places, including Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. I just reviewed before I gave you the last point, so I won't go through those again. Say, wow, Pastor we spent about 15 minutes talking about how do we know that God exists. That's all we get. And the next time, of course, next, next week, Brother Ray will be preaching two weeks, two, two, the week after that, two weeks from tonight, we'll start talking about the attributes of God. What? Well, bang. 15 minutes on the existence of God? Yeah. Because that's about all the Bible has to say. God is. I am. In the beginning, God. Not this big explanation for, you know, pre-Genesis 1-1. Imagine if they had an intro to Genesis 1-1. Well, it tells, tell you why there has to be a God. There can't not be a God. I'm not against all of those explanations and logical arguments and so forth. But don't ever forget that the Bible offers zero. Logical explanations for why there has to be a God. God just introduces himself, says, I'm God, let's roll. And by the way, you know I'm God. Let's conclude with the three thoughts we concluded with last week because it's very important for us to keep these things in front of us. First of all, our motive for studying God and Bible doctrine must always be a passion for God. Jeremiah 29, 13, and you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. Second thought, 
Our study of God and Bible doctrine must always be accompanied by genuine love. 1 Corinthians 13, 2, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And then thirdly, our study of God and Bible doctrine should result in greater service for the Lord. 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. God says, you want to be a better worker for me? Then you need to be able to rightly divide the word of truth. It should always result in greater service for the Lord. We have this false idea that, well, there's, there's Bible students and then there's servants of God. And you have to choose which one you're going to be. I, I love what Pastor Clark says. He said, you know, I've, I've served God for all my adult life. And he says, for years I heard people talk about, you be a, a soul winner and a bus worker, or are you going to be a deeper lifer? And he said, I used to say that until one day it dawned on me, wait a minute, what am I, a shallow lifer? And he said, I realized you can be deep in the things of God and serve him at the same time, and you have to. You, you need to be deep in both. So I was riding the bus this afternoon, this morning as well, and I enjoyed every, every minute of it. I love it. But I'm, I'm thinking about the things, and, and I immerse myself in these things all week long. I spend time studying these things every day of the week. And I'm, I'm thinking about my time in, in, in the Bible, my time in study of, of Bible doctrine and, and these incredible concepts and truths from the Bible and then riding on a bus and bringing people to church. And as I was sitting today and, you know, we had some adventures and challenges with, uh, with a couple of guys on the bus, and it's great. They're good guys, and you know, they're same, the same guys that sometimes we have some adventures and challenges with back in the corner over here on Sunday morning. And by the way, that's, that's part of bringing them to God. We take them from where they are to where they need to be. And sometimes where they are is not an easy place. And uh, I would, I would I just, I almost want to veer off and preach a whole message on this. Not that there's any problem with this, but just that I think we need to be reminded. You read sometime the, the biography of uh, William Booth. And it says that many times William Booth in London when he stood up to preach to the people, you understand that they were, and I think this is accurate, I haven't read his biography in a while, but I'm pretty sure this is accurate, that while Charles Spurgeon was preaching to a middle class and upper class uh, portion of London, William Booth is reaching the absolute lowest of the low in London. And he's, he's got, and again, it's been a while since I read this, but this is what's in my mind, that they've got uh, tents and empty warehouse kind of places where they're just inviting people in off the street. And in order for William Booth, William Booth would get up to preach sometimes and literally there'd be a riot going on inside of that room. And he'd have to shout with any, without any microphone or PA, he'd have to shout over the sound of the riot to get people to hear. And boy, I tell you, if you were a worker in that service, you must have thought, we're not doing any good. 
What good is this doing? And yet here we are, hundred and whatever years later, and we all know who William Booth is because he had that kind of an impact for God. I'm saying, and we could tell the same about Moody and his guys in Chicago and, and, and many others, but in order to take people from where they are to where they need to be, where they are can be kind of ugly. We got to be patient and we got to love them. And I'm sitting there on the bus today and, and loving every minute of it. I really, uh, and, and um, can't wait to get the other bus on the road and thinking, man, this is why I need to know more about God because I need to bring God into this guy's life. And how's this guy going to know God if, I don't, if I'm not constantly learning everything I can about my God? The doctrines of God, yes, they're deep. Yes, they're incredible and amazing. But they need to fill our souls so that we can fill the souls of those who are hungry for God. Don't tell me this is not practical stuff. It absolutely is because it strengthens us to strengthen others. Let's stand together tonight as a piano plays the altar.